Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is April 30th, 2015, and this is episode 1568 of the Survival Podcast. And in some ways, today is a throwback episode. When I started out in the car back in 2008, for those that are new to this show, I started this show in my car in, in the summer of 2008, and some of the immediate things that I started talking about were the, were the crash coming in the economy and how to protect your money from that. But I also started talking about basic preparedness, and I started talking about homesteading. And I started doing some shows where I would feature different plants, different plant varieties, things maybe you'd never heard of before. And I was I was not sure how well received that would be on a survivalist show that that I had marketed the show in the beginning, uh, you know, primarily as. And they were some of the most popular shows I'd ever done. And I would just go through a list of certain plants and their attributes and why you'd want to grow them. And people really loved that. And that's what I'm going to do today. And today we're going to talk about what I consider underrated plants. Some of these I bet you haven't heard of. I. I would say unless you're a plant geek like me and Nick Ferguson are, that uh, you probably will have at least one plant you'll be like, oh, I, I, I never heard of that. Or if you did, you, you probably heard of it here. Um, but most of them actually will be plants that you have heard of. You do know about them. And you just might not know all the wonderful things that they can do for you or why you might want them growing on your property. I also tried to do something really cool today. I tried to take this list and make it where, let's say somebody that was out grazing anything from ducks to, to cattle to horses on big land might have some stuff that they'd be like, oh, I want to do that, and it might not fit. You probably could, but it might not fit in your backyard. But if you had a backyard, that there would be a ton of these things that could go in suburban lots of a you know, tenth of an acre or, or a little bit more. Okay, So I tried to give this huge variety of stuff and to come up with some unique things on it. And what actually springboarded the whole idea was yesterday we had a fantastic discussion about mulberries on Facebook on the Bergerarians page. And I have a link in the show notes today. It might be worth taking a look at that just for the sheer amount of resources in it. In fact, my original idea for today's show when I went to bed last night was maybe I'll do a show on mulberries tomorrow. Just mulberries. All the different things that mulberries do. Fish systems. Yes, I said fish systems. Um, how they can be used as fodder systems, coppicing, pollarding, ulti- and I, I realized like, there's so much. I actually need to do some research on this before I do a show that's just on mulberries. So I just make it one of a long list of some cool stuff. That's what we're going to be doing today. Before I get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's for you here five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. And when I say original, I mean the first. They were the first people that ever stepped up and said, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing with the survival podcast. Yeah, this is back when I was still in the car. And they offered to sponsor the show when it was only a couple months old. And I didn't feel right about it. Uh, you know, I had a, a, if, you know, a couple hundred listeners maybe in, in the first few months when they were offering to do this. And I just didn't feel right taking their money. I built the show up to you know several thousand listeners and then said, let's talk, let's work something out. And they sponsored the show in February of 2009 when I launched the Members Brigade. They've been a loyal sponsor since February of 2009. I, I really think you should let that sink in if you love this show. 
um, that, that that's what kind of support I've gotten out of them as a sponsor. And to be fair, most of my sponsors have been with me for years. And that's why there's, and I'll tell you part of why they're still here. I keep the rates stupid cheap. I, I don't turn sponsors over. Um, I really believe in, in, in sticking with the one you brought to the dance. And, and, and this is the original dance partner of the Survival Podcast. They have everything for your prepping needs, and they give away their discount membership club. Uh, that sells for $49 every day. They give that away to you guys for free. It gives you discounts on everything they sell. It's a lifetime membership. Makes your first year a dollar in, in the Members Brigade if you join that. So it, it's just a great company and great people to do business with. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. When you start hearing the gu gun grabbers get some traction about getting something done, uh, guns go start to sell really fast and price goes up and, and so do magazines. But what disappears the quickest and takes the longest to recover, we're still seeing that with 22 Long Rifle. It's been two years with the 22 Long Rifle problem um, is ammo. So stock up while you can and while it's cheap. And the best place I know to get your ammo in bulk, bulkammo.com. They do have a special deal for members of the Support Brigade. You can learn more uh, by going to the survivalpodcast.com, logging into your Support Brigade account, and clicking on the benefits section and checking out bulkammo.com and see what they offer. But if you want ammo and you want it in bulk and you want it at your front door so fast you, f you can't even figure out how they got it there, check them out. You'll see why. Uh, next up today, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 15. 68, and uh, we have the 80 Years' War in those lands around there, and we have paying off the Ottomans and the price of a Christian life. I'm going to read the 80 Years' War in those lands around there. The Dutch are unhappy with their absentee leader, Philip II, the King of Spain. He refers to the 17th provinces of the Netherlands, Belgium, and Flanders as those lands around there. That's, that's pretty disconcerting when that's how your leader views you, isn't it? At least he was transparent with it. He didn't pay lip service to it. He was pretty clear, huh? Anyway, taxation has always been heavy, and those lands have exploded with rioting. The destruction led by the Calvinists, since the Huguenots, who are also Calvinists, have come to a truce with France. They have some time on their hands, so they pitch in to help their brothers in the Netherlands. William the Silent sends his brother, Adolf of Nassau, uh, Nassau uh, to lead an army north and attack the Spanish forces. After an early victory, the Spanish backlash is severe. The Eighty Years' War is on. The war will wind down for a time as William runs out of money, but Adolf will earn a verse in the Dutch national anthem. It is the oldest national anthem in the world in terms of music. Japan is the oldest in terms of words. Um, my take by Alex Shrug. You're seeing the beginning of the Dutch Empire. Dutch independence is only the beginning. By the end of the Eighty Years' War and the Thirty Years' War, which will run parallel to it in Germany, people are going to be so horrified at the chaos and destruction that they will set down some rules for warfare. Rules that remain in the modern day, such as the military cannot turn over its weapons to a third party and expect to be absolved from whatever those third parties do with those weapons. Thus, the U.S. military cannot give Stinger missiles to the Afghan Mujahideen to use against the Soviet Union in 1979. That would mean war. But the CIA could fund the rebels and then sell them weapons. See Operation Cyclone, otherwise known as Charlie Wilson's War. And things get murky when the military sells its surplus equipment to the police. I worry when the police look more like a military force than peace officers. Wow, yeah. Um, I completely agree with those last two things. Man. Uh, you cops that, that you know are suiting up like uh, you're ready to, to start kicking doors down in Afghanistan or something, look at yourself in the mirror and think about that. Just think about it. 
That's all I'm going to say. The next time you guys, you know, near thing where you suited up that way, you know, just go look at yourself in the mirror and really think about it. And think about if that's what you really wanted and that's what you really believed in when you decided you wanted to be a police officer and help and serve and protect people. That's all I'll say about that. I'll leave it to you. Um, the way the United States disturbs and disrupts the actions around the world with what we call monetary hitmen is, is one of our greatest crimes against the world. And some of our greatest enemies have been created by us, and whether we intended them to be enemies eventually so we'd have another war to fight or another excuse to intervene, or whether it was done by mistake, doesn't really matter. If we didn't do it in the first place, we wouldn't have it. Um, the Soviet Union was not a threat to us in any way with their actions in Afghanistan. And honestly, to, to the Soviet Union, Afghanistan was like our Vietnam. Uh, we had no business intervening there at all. And I just want to put it to you this way for those of you that don't know. The Mujahideen, who we backed in 1979 and through the 80s and, and, and provided weapons to, it, we might as well have just gave them the weapons. If you give somebody money and then let them give you the money back to buy the weapon from you, yeah, you're just you're playing on a technicality there. Those people have a new name. Taliban. Yep. That's where the Taliban came from. The Taliban are the Mujahideen, and one of their real glorious fighters in the day, when we were backing them, no less than Osama bin Laden. Yes, Osama bin Laden was on the CIA's payroll at one time. That's my take by Jack Spearco. I'm going to let that go because we've had enough heavy crap lately, and I want to get into something that's just a little bit fun here. So I want to start out <clears throat> talking about Mulberry and what what I think it can do for us that we generally don't even realize. First of all, I'd like to talk to you guys about why I think Mulberry isn't grown more often or more frequently. Oh, hold on. Hold on, guys. I forgot to tell you something that I really need to tell you. Neil Franklin's going to kick my ass. Um, Gen Ford is, is operational. Uh, if you want to start recording a legacy for future generations, whether it's the day you planted a mulberry tree or the day you put a piece of silverware away from them or the day you met your wife, check out genforward.com and sign up for a free trial and start inviting your family members and uh, start creating your legacy today. Uh, Gen Forward is a, a project that I've had in my heart for almost 20 years. And it's up and running now. I put out a post today on the Gen Forward blog, and I put that post on Facebook. Give it a read. The question was simply, if you could afford any car in the world, what would you buy? And I think my answer to it might come as a surprise to many of you. Check out the post. I'd love to hear your comments on that post over at the Gen Forward blog. Anyway, back to it. So back to Mulberry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, so the Mulberry... I think we have a, a couple different reasons why it's not used more in America. Some of the really awesome varieties for eating the berries are not quite capable of handling some of the colder climates in the United States. But there's plenty that are. Um, but like the Pakistan mulberry, the big long ones, they taste great. You try to grow that in like zone 5 or something, it, it can't handle the frost. So there, there, there is that. American native mulberry, the red mulberry, is not quite of the highest quality of food that, that many of the other uh, varieties of mulberry and hybrids of different crosses are. So I think that a lot of people that have eaten mulberry 
uh, have eaten like these little sour mealy things from, you know, wild mulberry trees and haven't actually tasted a mulberry that's been cultivated and been selected uh, for, for the purpose of consumption. So I think that's, that's part of it of itself. And then I think the other thing is a lot of people have what I call <clears throat> horrific vehicular experiences with mulberries. Somewhere there's a big giant mulberry tree and you park your car near it or it happens to be near your, your, your porch because you bought a house there was one in it. And then the birds come like the, you know, um, Alfred Hitchcock bird flock. And they eat lots of mulberries, and they crap purple juice all over the place, so you cut the mulberry tree down. Um, so there's a couple solutions to that one, and one is there are actually white-fruited uh, mulberries and, and, and lavender pinkish-fruited mulberries that are very good, and some are actually higher quality than some of the dark varieties. And the birds will poop, but they don't poop the purple stains. And if they fall on your porch or whatever because they're close to the house, they don't make purple stains. Uh, that's one solution. Another solution is just because you've seen mulberry trees that are 35 feet tall with a 40-foot canopy that are massive doesn't mean they have to be that big. The mulberry can be trained into just about anything. You can take the, the largest species of mulberry and basically bonsai it at six feet, if that's what you want to do. And if you keep a tree below about eight feet, at the top of the canopy, you don't get as many birds in it because they don't feel as safe. They, like The whole point of being a bird is you can fly away. And, and they like to be high up in trees. And even if they're down low in a tree, there's some about they like to be down low in a big tree that they can go up in. They don't really like to come land in a bush. They'll do it. I'm not saying they won't do it. I'm just saying you get a lot less bird pressure with lower pruned trees and bushes, especially in the suburbs and especially if there's larger trees in your surrounding area. So that's another way that can be mitigated. So there's that. And then as far as the taste, it's just simply try different varieties until you find one you like. I'm not saying everybody's going to like mulberry, but most if you like blackberry or raspberry, you probably would. Uh, I think there's also a lot of ways to use it. I just learned about something they, they, they drink in Azerbaijan, which is basically they take mulberry, they squeeze the juice out of it, they add sugar, and they cook it down to a syrup. And then they mix like a tablespoon of that with water and lemon juice. And it's just a very, very popular drink in, in, in the summer heat. Very refreshing. Sounds awesome. But, you know, when we think of mulberry, we also think of a berry. So as soon as you hear berry, you think, okay, the berry is the yield. Mulberry is actually highly palatable as a leaf. That's why it was used, you know, silkworms obviously eat it. And they make silk from, you know, mulberry fiber with, with their cocoons. I was just watching Andrew Zimmer, the bizarre food guy, and he was over in some place in China where they were uh, showing that the people that actually make the silk, so they, they grow the mulberry trees, they feed them to the silkworms, they harvest the silk off the cocoons, and they keep so many silkworms and let them go to moths and let them produce again so that they have a continuing supply. And they take the, re the remainder of the silkworms in the pupa state and they eat them. They deep fry them so they're like crunchy, filled with bug custard is the way he uh, described it. Not really my thing, but it's the palatability of those leaves that makes them such a good thing for the silkworm to eat. Well, it turns out that you can eat uh, many different varieties of, of mulberry leaf, and it's very high in protein. Uh, I've seen numbers anywhere from 15 to 28%, depending on species and time of harvest. So it's a high-protein green. Um, it's best eaten when it's young, but there are certain varieties of mulberry that you can eat, you know, well into summer, the, the leaves. 
the livestock will eat it like crazy. Uh, I have a, a dwarf mulberry that's about three foot tall that has almost no leaves on it right now because the ducks ate all the leaves off of it. So if you're growing a tree and you, you pollard it, which is basically you prune it way back, but instead of pruning it to the ground, which is a coppice, you prune it maybe head height. And all these shoots come up and it keeps growing back year after year and you can, you know, every so often cut it back and it grows back and cut it back and it grows back. And the older it gets, the more gnarled the pollards get, the more comes up and you can get huge yields. And if you're growing something like cattle or goats, that's a huge part of their food. So you can actually be feeding not just the berries, but the leaves and young stems to livestock. And like I said, ducks eat it. I know geese eat it. Uh, goats will eat it like crazy. Cattle will eat it. Pigs will eat it. And again, we're talking about something that's generally over 20% protein. If you know anything about poultry and raising poultry and raising, raising, uh, uh, pork, you always want to get your protein up in these different, uh, you know, livestock issues when you're trying to raise, you know, young livestock into full-size livestock for slaughter. So it's a huge protein source. And then, of course, there's a good carbohydrate source in the berry, and the berry is actually like 1.5% protein. So it can be used for that. And I was looking at some of the resources in the, uh, the discussion we had, and it turns out that in some places in, in like, Mexico, and they've gone to coppicing um, mulberry for feeding cattle because they don't have the best pasture lens down there. And they have these mulberries in rows and rows and rows, and they're also growing moringa with them, which is another tree that we really won't talk about today. Um, and they cut it right to the ground, and it just comes up like a bush. And then they, they, you know, they have cycles that they take from these these bushes and feed the cattle. So they don't bring the cattle to the bush; they bring the material to the cattle, and that way they can control exactly how much gets taken off of each bush and when. The yields they're getting are 57 tons to the hectare. Now, a hectare's not, not exact. you don't exactly divide a hectare in half and get two acres. It's like 2.2 acres or something like that. But let's just do, let's just call that 25 tons an acre. Um, alfalfa yields are typically from marginal land, two tons to typical four tons to exceptional land, maybe six tons to the acre. So my thought is, well, what if you're actually doing this for cattle and you're doing a civil pasture model with coppiced mulberry and you have your your clover, medic, alfalfa pasture, grass-based pasture, and the two together, you can produce massive amounts of, of, of cattle feed. So, I mean, when I start looking at it, so like I said, I'm going to leave mulberry now. I just wanted to kind of give you an idea of just how much this thing does. One more for you. Another thing I looked at were these uh, these villages in China where they make um, the silk. And this isn't where Andrew Zimmer was. This is one of the resources in the discussion. And you look, and there's like all these beautiful Asian-looking homes, these little village homes. And it's surrounded with, with ponds. There's ponds everywhere. And strips of land dividing the ponds. And it almost looks like the houses are floating. There's so many ponds. And all of the strip land between the ponds is covered with coppiced or pollarded mulberry. And what they're doing is they take the leaves and they give the leaves to the silkworms. But of course the trees grow, produce berries, and the berries drop into the ponds. And they're raising fish in the ponds. And the, the fish 
are getting a huge amount of their, their nutrition from the mulberries. So they're actually building a mulberry fish system. You start to realize like how much this one plant does, and that's what led me to the subject of today's show. Like How many other plants are there out there that we could be doing things with that we don't really understand um, how much diversity we can get out of a plant? So my next one for you is one that almost everybody here, I'm sure, has heard of before, elderberry. And elderberry is most known in the south and the northeast, anyway, for, for wine. It's not generally the case that people get a big handful of elderberries and put them in their mouth and, and eat them and spit the seeds out, because, well, it's, it's kind of bland that way. Elderberry is either usually squeezed into a juice and then made into a wine or used as part of a wine. It's also made into jams and jellies. It's sometimes sweetened, and then the juice is good. But usually if it's used as a juice that you drink, it's mixed with other things and sweetened. And it's interesting what happens with, an elder, with elderberry juice once it's sweetened at all. It's, it's totally different. It's, it's a lot like adding salt to certain foods. There's foods that if you eat it without salt, you go, and every chef knows this, right? But there's some foods, a lot of foods, in fact, most foods, when you add salt, it brings out the other flavors. But there's some foods that are literally flat and bland. You hit them with salt, and it does not like taste like bland with salt. All of a sudden, all those other flavors come out. That's how elderberry is. When elderberry is somewhat sweetened, you you get those other flavors: the 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 raisiny, the the cherry like, the 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 different components to elderberry. The depths of flavor just aren't evident when they're really bland. So you have that whole juice thing. Now that juice can actually be thickened through a cooking process, and then it's actually really great as a cough syrup. And it's one of the best medicinals in the world overall is elderberry to begin with. And if you go to anything from a health food store to a big box store and you check the nutritional supplement area, you'll find elderberry is a very uh, sought-after nutritional supplement because it does so many amazing things with uh, vitamins, antioxidants, etc. So it's got all that. But it, it can do more for us. I don't think many people know this, but elderberries, when they go to flower to produce berries, they produce these huge pancake-shaped blossoms. And there's, they're really not a blossom. It's like hundreds and hundreds of blossoms in this, this one structure, little tiny white flowers. Those are elderflowers. And you can cut those off if you're willing to sacrifice that group of berries And they actually can be battered and fried as a fritter, and they're amazing. Well, there's other things we can do with them, especially if you're a vinter or a mead maker or a cider maker or a beer maker. Angry Orchard is not my favorite cider by a long shot. My problem with Angry Orchard cider is they're marketing like this Angry Orchard and this guy's all tough and all, but the reality is it's sweet. It tastes like an apple wine cooler. Because what they do with, with Angry Orchard in general, most of their formulas, is they ferment it, they kill the yeast through pasteurization, and then they add sugar and back sweeten it because they're selling to the mainstream market of kids that want to drink things that taste like candy and get them drunk instead of people that really appreciate cider. But they've come out with a couple varieties that I've tried that were pretty good that were not back-sweetened, or at least less back-sweetened, and one was a limited edition where they used elderflower in the cider. And it was still a bit sweet to me, 
But I could tell those elderflowers were there. It was pretty interesting. And my thought of a, a true hard cider, elder elderflower hard cider with a good tart, dry cider would be really amazing. And doing the same thing with a mead. So you've got all these different uses for elderflowers. The next thing is they they grow like mad. I've got a picture of an elderberry growing in one of my hugel mounds. I planted it last year. It came, I think this one came from Raintree. It was a single root with one stem coming out and a little bud on it. I planted it last year. It did okay. Uh, the geese beat it up pretty bad. It really didn't look very happy by the end of the, the, the growing season. All the heat and trying to adapt to this and put roots down because of these tiny little roots. Well, it did build enough energy up that this year when it came back, it is blow you away now. It is so huge. I've got a picture, and I just kind of stuck a, a bamboo stake balanced up against it to take the picture to give scale. But the bamboo stake is six and a half feet tall, and it's probably about one foot taller than the top of the elderberry bush. And that thing's got growing to do yet. It ain't even got flowers on it yet. And it's sending up suckers like mad. So it's going to give me the ability to make a hell of a lot more of them just from pulling suckers off of it. And hopefully Nick Ferguson will have my question about exactly how to do that answered for tomorrow's show in the Expert Council. Um, but So it's, it's a, a plant that can be easily propagated one way or another, um, and it's hardy. I'll tell you how hardy it is. I planted in another Hugel mound, very close to the one I have the picture of, uh, another one. I think one's Adams and one's John's. Uh, varieties of the elderberry. And the, the John's one got hammered by heat. It got hammered by bugs. It got hammered by geese. And it just ended up by the end of the year, it was just some sticks sticking up out of the ground. And when I went to you know, check them for green, they were dead. They snap right off. And I, I gave up. I said, well, this, 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 this guy's dead. I'll figure out something to plant there in the spring. So this spring, you know, I had a plant and I was thinking, I'll go put it where that dead elderberry is. And I go out there and a shoot's coming up. So even with it going that far, so you've got this really hardy plant that's a medicinal, that can be propagated, that can provide an edible flower and give you uh, a juice that can be used for anything from alcoholic beverages to, 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 to jams and, and what have you. I'll tell you what, it's awesome. Now, i got to tell you a little thing here. I realized that I played something from Monty Python for you guys last week. And I said it's the funniest line uh, out of the, the, the quest for the Holy Grail. And it's about when the, the French guy is, 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 says to the, the English knight, when he says, you can come, he tell your master you can come look for the Holy Grail with us, he goes, no, I don't think he'll want to go. He's already got one. In that whole scene, there's, a, there's a, another well-liked for nerds anyway uh, scene, a part of that scene, that where the Frenchman says... To the Englishman, your mother is a hamster and your father smells of elderberries. And I don't think most Americans get that joke. A hamster is a small rodent that breeds with anything and pumps out lots of babies. I won't use the word that some people would use to describe a woman that does that, but you can figure that out. Your mother is a blank. And elderberries were constantly used as a source to make alcohol because they grew wild and they were so hardy and you could find them anywhere. And you know the peasants could get them and ferment the juice and, and what have you. So your father's a drunk. That's what that line actually means. Don't know why that came into my head, but I, I just figured I'd tell you. So moving on from there, 
We've now come up with mulberries that we can feed our animals with, we can feed ourselves with, we have high protein, we can feed fish with them, we can pollard and coppice, we can get wood yields, blah, blah, blah. We came with the elderberries, we get the flowers, we get the berries, we get alcoholic beverages, we get medicinal. Now let's go to something completely different that you can grow anywhere, even in a little flower bed, lemon balm. Um, it amazes me how much effort people put into trying to grow lemons where lemons don't want to grow. When what you're really after with lemons, and I know there's a certain amount of value to the juice itself, but mostly what you want from lemons is the flavor. Well, lemon balm, and in some areas lemon grass, will give you a lot of that flavor, and lemon balm will grow just about anywhere in the United States. It's a relative, it's a mint uh, family member. Uh, it spreads like crazy, and once you get some of it going, if you want more, you take a cutting from it, And it'll root like no, nobody's business for you, and you can make as much of it as you want. Which means you can take plenty of it and not worry that it won't come back. It is wonderful for teas. It's wonderful for flavorings. Chopped up bits of it into a salad, and all of a sudden, salad tastes like there's lemon juice on it. Um, it also has great flowers, so it's a good insect attractor. And once you get it established somewhere, it's not going away. And it will do good in sun, but it'll also do just fine in shade as long as it gets a little bit of sun. So it's a good understory. It's a good ground cover. And you can do a lot of things with it that I, I don't think people really would think to do. One is if you've ever been out working and you work with, let's say, a lot of compost or maybe you're doing some butchering or you work with fish or something and you get kind of a stink on your hands that even when you wash your hands, the, the stink just doesn't want to go away. If you take um, a, a pretty good sized cutting of, of lemon balm and you, you know, go ahead and wash your hands first, get the dirt off of it. And then you take that and run it under cool water while you rub the lemon balm across your hands. It'll take just about any stink you can imagine off of your hands to where you're not just going, I still smell it. Have you ever been that way? You've worked with something. And you get it. I'll tell you another thing that does this. It doesn't bother me, but it bothers some people. Cilantro. You touch cilantro and you get that smell and it's just there and you can't get it off your hands. Lemon balm will get that smell off your hands. Uh, arugula does the same thing. I like cilantro and arugula, so it doesn't bother me. But those are two plants that so I've seen people just like, where if your hands smell a little lemony, well, that's okay. They make dish soap smell lemony because people like it. Uh, lemon balm also has some sedative properties, and you can make basically an herbal syrup from it mixed with honey that, that help to alleviate stress at the end of the day and people that have a little bit of trouble getting to sleep. So this is not like a sleep aid, like a narcotic. This is just like you're, you're tired, you want to go to sleep, but you just your mind's too active. This has a very calming effect. And basically, all you really do is get about a cup of lemon balm leaves and put it in a pot and add enough water to just cover them uh, and simmer that uh, with the top just off to the side for about 15 minutes and uh, then strain the leaves out. And then add about a half a cup of honey uh, to the tea, stir that up, and then let it sit for about a week in your refrigerator. That's that's a, a, just a, another really great uh, use for lemon balm. So it has a lot of different things uh, that it can that it can do for you. Uh, a lot of people like to do flavored vinegars, like with chili uh, peppers and things like that. 
Um, a, a lemon balm infused vinegar has a lot of great lemon character. It makes, you know, for really good, um, like salad dressings and things like that. So there's just a, a, a ton of stuff that you can do with it. And it's pretty dadgone good just as basically an herbal water. You fill a jar with lemon balm leaves and a couple slices of lemon if you want a little more lemon flavor. Pour water over it and refrigerate for several hours and just taste great. Well, there's a few things you can do. And I got those last couple from a uh, article on the nerdywife.com. And I'm going to put a link in today's show notes to the other things that she has that you can do with lemon balm because I just think it is an awesome plant, totally underrated for all it does for, and it asks for nothing. As long as it gets some moisture, it's going to live and it's going to come back year after year and you're going to have more of it year after year. Uh, one more thing about it before I move on. It actually makes a pretty decent um, insect repellent. It does have some citronella in it, but it's not quite as in your face with it as like the citronella plant. Well, if you just crush up some lemon balm and like rub it on your arms and your face and your neck, not only will you smell nice, um, you're, you're probably a lot less likely to get bitten uh, by quite as many mosquitoes. I won't say it's 100% effective, but it will reduce the incidence of insect bites. Uh, so, I mean, what else does all that? I mean, the stuff even helps to suppress cold sores. So the uh, the herpes virus can manifest as cold sores on your lips. <clears throat> and uh, a, a basically, you can use it just as the, the smashed up lemon balm juice, but if mixed with beeswax and made into more of an herbal salve, it's, it's pretty good at actually reducing the incidence and decreasing the dur duration and severity of that. It's, and again, this is something that you can go down at Walmart and buy one in a, in a little peat pot, uh, for a couple bucks generally in their plant section from like Bonnie's plants or whatever. Not my favorite supplier, but I mean, you can get one. And once you get one, you get established. You're, it's done. You're, you're, you're never going to be without it ever again. So check that one out. Uh, it's part of my favorite tea, uh, but I'm going to save that until I get to the second to the last one because most of the things that are in my favorite tea are in this. Uh, next up today is Blackberry. And blackberries, well, most of us as kids, we picked blackberries in the ditches or whatever, and we think of the blackberry as, oh, you get a blackberry. It is what it is. You know, some cultivars, though, of blackberry, like Triple Crown, Chester, etc., will produce up to 30 pounds of berries per plant. 30 pounds of berries per plant. So recently I put in the muscadines all along my fence I talked about, and I'm, I'm planting in between them now as I go um, about 100 blackberry plants, triple crowns. I got them for $2 a, a, a root, uh, from just dug up roots from a guy on a forum. Uh, so it's 200 bucks. Let's cut the yield in half, okay, from 30 to 15 pounds. And then let's go 15 pounds times 100 plants. We're about fifteen hundred pounds of fruit. The yield is 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 astronomical when you think about it that way. Now, yeah, you're looking at a five six year old plant before it's going to yield that level for you. But now you've got blackberry. You've got another fermentable. Uh, you've got another medicinal. Uh, if if my throat was raw, I could do in a you know with a with a fall cold or something like that. I and you both could do a lot worse than a syrup made of blackberry and elderberry juice. You throw a little black, native black cherry in there to go with it and uh, maybe a little bit of marshmallow. And you've really got something that's good for the throat 
uh, and yet gentle and, and has a lot of other health benefits to it as well. But what a lot of people don't know about blackberry is it's not just the berry that's a yield. The leaf is a yield. Blackberry leaf makes a good tea. And you can ferment blackberry leaf into a black tea that you almost cannot tell the difference between it and Camilla, which is the tea you buy you know, from Lipton or whatever. So you can make tea from blackberry. And then we now have what they call promacane blackberries. I have some of these growing that will produce two crops a year. So you get berries on your first year canes late in the season and berries on your second year canes early in the season. So you get two yields off of a promacane blackberry. So there's just a lot that can be done with blackberry. The blossoms also make a good tea. There, If you've ever seen when the blackberries flower, the bees cover them. They, they just love blackberry blossom. The other thing that blackberry does for you that I, I don't think many people realize is the leaf of the blackberry to insects is almost identical to, to grape leaves. And that means the same pest that attacks grapes attacks blackberries. Why would you want that? Well, because if you have blackberries, they leaf out before your grapes. The pests then come in early when they're still low in population and they start feeding on your blackberry leaves. And then the, 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 the predators that eat those pests are very specific uh, to these leaf hoppers that, that it will infect uh, blackberry and grapes and reduce the yields. The predators to them are very, very specific predators that predate on them in large numbers. Well, when those, there's not that much to eat as far as their prey are around, and they're on your blackberries, these predators come in and they start feeding on them. Now, as they start to dwindle that population down, there's still some prey for them to feed upon. The lion still has some gazelles to eat. That's the way to think about it. You don't want to completely eliminate the gazelles if you want lions, because the lions will leave. They'll go somewhere else. So by the time the blackberry has kind of gotten the leaves larger and they're less susceptible, because they like to eat them when the leaves are young and tender, just like you would. By that time, the grapes are starting to leaf out, Your predators are already in place, and the predators just move from the blackberry to the grapes. There was a study done in California that this effect in large stands of grape and blackberry could be had from as much as four miles away. So these organic orchards that were doing much better than organic orchards five miles down the road, and they couldn't figure out what it was, and that's what they eventually figured out, that there were large stands of blackberries within four miles of one but not the other. So if it'll work for four miles, it'll certainly work for four feet. And that's about how far my blackberry is away from, from my grapevines. I have them you know, integrated together. Now, you've got a plant that makes tea. You've got a plant that makes a juice that can be fermented. You've got a plant that makes a jelly, a jam. It's good for fresh eating. It has high yields. You can get two yields a year out of certain cultivars. You can make tea out of it, both a fresh tea and you can make a black tea. The dried berries actually added to tea bring a lot of flavor. So like a blackberry mint tea made with both fermented blackberry leaf, mint leaf, and dried blackberry would be badass. A little bit of honey added to that. Just, just start to realize like how well you can live off a piece of property if you start understanding all the things these, these, these items do for you. Now, what if you were sitting around and you said, you know what I want, Jack? I want like some cinnamon apple sauce custard type thing. That's what I want. I want I want to grow cinnamon apple sauce custard. I don't want to I don't want to grow apples and grow cinnamon and 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 grow sugar and make it. I want one thing that grows me a little cup 
of cinnamon applesauce custard. You think I'd go, dude, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Nope, got it for you. It's called Medlar. M-E-D-L-A-R, Medlar. Uh, these were very, very popular in Europe. Uh, around the, you know, we're doing the history segments, 1500s, man. This was a, this was a dessert. Medlars grow these hard little fruits. And when they're on the branch, if you pulled one off when they're about ready to be pulled off and try to eat it, it's hard, it's astringent. It's sort of like a persimmon that, that hasn't gone full ripe yet. But it doesn't taste like persimmon. It tastes like Medlar, which tastes like cinnamon applesauce custard. So you just take them and you set them on a shelf or a counter and let them blet for a few days so they go soft. And you pick them up and the end has like a little hole in it. And you take a spoon and you eat the cinnamon applesauce custard right out of the little cup. Now, I don't have a lot of other stuff meddlers do for you, but I figured if I could grow cinnamon applesauce custard for you that you'd be pretty happy with that as a unique plant. What I will say is they do okay in partial shade. They are a shrub, not a tree. So if you're actually doing permaculture design, you're looking for shrub layer stuff, or you have smaller spaces where you don't want a full-size tree, you can grow these. I recommend you get at least two varieties and plant them close enough to get some cross-pollination. You'll get better yields. The next one is, and it's really four, wild garlic, wild onion, and garlic and onion chives. There's, there's more to this than meets the eye. We have two different varieties of wild garlic growing on our property that I did not plant. And you can pull it up and you can eat it and you can use the green part like a chive and that's, that's really good. But pulling up the, the bulbs is kind of not really that valuable to me. Um, you'd have to pull up a lot of them. They're a little bit hard to get out of the ground. They're small. They take a lot of work to clean. But in the spring when they flower, we have one variety that's a white flower and one variety that's like a purplish pink flower. The little flowers explode with garlic flavor. And we just go out and pull them off and you throw those in a salad. The onion, and the, the, the white one's more of an onion strain and it has an oniony flavor, but it's not that in-your-face onion taste that I don't really care for. It's like this mild onion. The garlic is explosive in, in a great way. It like pops and just it's just awesome. And then, you know, obviously garlic chives and, and onion chives are great for chopping up and using for flavoring and cooking and things like that. But they also flower, and their flowers to me are better than the plant itself. Now, the wild onion, wild garlic stuff is pretty cool because they don't do anything. It does it all by itself. The thing about garlic and onion chives is you can actually get them established to the point where they act the same way and, and for not a lot of money. I just ordered like a stupid amount of chives from Mountain Valley Seed, mvseed.com, uh, four ounces of chive seeds. That's a lot. That's like hundreds of thousands of seeds. 18 bucks. And an ounce of garlic chives, not anywhere near as much, but still a lot. An ounce is a lot of seed um, for garlic chives was seven bucks. And I am going to scatter them as part of my seed mixes. I'm going to, you know, a little bit every time I do a seed mix and all over the property. And once they get established, that's it. They're part of your pasture. They're part of your lawn. One day I remember when I was really a little kid, we were down, my grandfather and I were down by the garden, and we were doing some stuff, and I looked in the, the grass just south of the garden, and, you know, you've got like this grass and clover mixture, and I see these dark green stringy things sticking up. And 
you know, pattern recognition. Kids have it. <laughs> Some's, what is that? And he's, oh, them's chives. They taste like onions. They're good. They're good on baked potatoes. Guess what we're having for dinner that night after you tell a kid that? We're having baked potatoes with butter and chives. So I'm like, well, how do you use them? He goes, you just cut them off, and they stay in the ground, and you chop them up. Take some of your grandma. She'll show you what to do with them. So I'm stoked, and I'm down there, and I'm, I'm cutting them and cutting them, and I've, I've got this huge handful. He goes, whoa, that's enough, you know. A little of that goes a long way. And I'm like, oh, I didn't mean to take too many. He goes, oh, you can take as much as you want. I'll just come back. But it's just you don't need that many. They, they're only good when they're fresh. They don't taste good at, you know, the next day. They get all limp. Oh, okay. So now I'm looking at this, and I went, Grandpa, are these, are these like a wild thing or something? He goes, nah, I planted them. Back when your dad was a little boy, I got a couple packets of seed and dump them out there. They've been there ever since. This is why I tell you to teach your kids how to grow and produce food. I remember that day like it was yesterday. And that's part of why I know where my food comes from. That's part of why I care. And if you think about, so, like, if this is a stupid amount. You don't need this much. Remember, I'm in a very harsh, alkaline soil, uh, brutal summer environment. The reason I'm putting so much seed down is so that some of it will naturalize. If you have a lawn that you water, if you live in the northeast, if you have soil versus rock like I do, You could probably get four or five packs of them for like the cheap ones for 20 cents a pack at Walmart and do the same thing. But even if you did this and you got four ounces of the regular chives and an ounce of garlic chives, you'd probably share them with half the neighborhood. But if you did put them all down, what do you have, 25 bucks? 25 bucks for something that once it's established, it's on forever? And you've got these multiple yields. You've got the, the, the individual chives. Yes, I can chop those. But by letting them go to the flower and, and harvesting those flowers, I get more flavor. Plus, I get the beneficial insect attractant. I mean, and it's there. You, you don't ever really have to do anything with it ever again. That's the type of thing that I like to do. I don't think permaculture is always a swale and a hoogle mound and 57 trees. If we can just begin to get things growing that are usable, that are part of our property, that are part of its ecosystem, we're, we're already a long way toward being more sustainable and getting more value from our property. Next up, lavender. Lavender is in every hand lotion variety and soaps and everything. And I think a lot of people don't like lavender used that way because we live in a culture of excess. And most lavender products are not lavender products. Lavender's in there, but it's enhanced, it's blown up, it's in your face, it stinks. My wife was convinced she hated lavender. So we're, we're out in the garden that I had in Arlington one day, and she sees these pretty flowers, and I guess they're purple, not lavender to her, and she's like, those are pretty, and I'm like, smell it. She goes, that smells pretty good. I'm like, you hate that. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah, that's lavender. She goes, no way. I'm like, yeah, that's lavender. So lavender has, obviously, can be made into soaps and lotions and stuff. It's a great tea plant, um, both the leaves and the flower. But very, very useful as a tea. I don't think most people realize it's actually great to cook with, and, and not just for, like, dessert-type stuff. Um, Herbe de Provence is a very traditional French um, herbal mix, and it has some lavender in it. The key with lavender is to not use too much You use too much, it gets almost bitter, and it kind of reminds you of like eating perfume or something like that, and that's that's not what you want to do. Um, 
if you just wanted like a refreshing drink um, during the uh, the summertime, a couple slices of cucumber, uh, a couple sprigs of mint, and a couple sprigs of lavender, and then take that and put that into the water and mix it up with some ice. And a way to really kind of blow that up is, you know, the shakers like you use to make a, an adult beverage. You put that all into there and you shake that up. Or you can make a big jar with those three things mixed together. And it's uh, it's an awesome, awesome drink. And it, it has incredible health benefits. And most of us that garden have more cucumbers than, than we know what to do with. So it's another use for them. There's all types of ways that lavender can be used. I've seen it used in, in beef dishes, uh, salmon, cooked with salmon. Uh, you can make actually a, la a lavender sorbet, which is like an ice cream. Uh, there's cookies. There's, I've seen it used on the tops of breads. So it's really one of those things you want to, you know, do more investigating for yourself with. But it has an incredible uh, depth of flavor that it brings to things, uh, including a little bit of lavender and a little bit of mint, um, and and basically putting that in like a mortar and pestle and kind of macerating that a little bit, and then mix that with butter. A softened butter, and then brush that on lamb chops when you cook it on the grill, and and so you got rosemary and lavender, salt and butter mixed up and used as a brush on for lamb chops on the grill. A little bit at the beginning, and then right at the end, kind of melt it into it, so it gets that nutty butter flavor to it. Let me know how that works out for you. You'll you'll probably be growing this stuff. But on top of all this, it's a great beneficial insect attractor. It's a perennial. It's tough as nails once it's established. It brings bees in. And so you once you get it planted, it looks nice, and you don't ever have to do anything with it ever again. And that's the kind of things I like to grow. So there's another useful one for you. Next one I have for you is a tree. And it's thorny as all get out, and it's tough as hell. It can handle alkalinity. It'll do fine in acidic soils as well, as long as you're not like, you know, like cranberry bog acidic. It'll grow, I think, into zone six. So most of the country you can grow this plant. And it has a huge following in the Asian community. It's called jujube. And what they look like and sort of kind of taste like are little apples. And they have one big pit, though, in them. So imagine like a small apple with a plum-like pit in the center. That's kind of what jujube looks like. Um, I had a, a gentleman from uh, China here just last week who I gave some uh, goji plants to. He was very excited about the goji plants. And he was very excited about the duck eggs. And he was very disappointed that the geese are basically done laying the goose eggs because he really wanted those. And my wife's like, says to me while he's walking, looking at some of the stuff, he goes, tell him about the jujube. I'm like, oh, hell no, I'm not telling him about that because we don't have any yet. We just have the trees. And he'll be calling back, like, when are they ready? They'll be ready in like three years, right? Um, but the, the Asian community, Uh, especially anybody that's actually grown up there and come here has a real affinity for these things. They're very, very popular over there. And they can be eaten fresh or they can be left on the tree to dry like a date. And once they dry like a date, they're almost infinitely storable. And you can pick them right off the tree dried, ready to store. And at that point, when all the extra moisture is out of them and all, and they're in a concentrated state, they call them a Chinese date, because that's kind of what they're usable as, is a sugar substitute, and they're 47% sugar at that point. So it's basically a sugar tree or a fresh fruit tree. You take your pick. But Lee and Lang are the two most notable varieties, and Lee is more, more used as a fresh fruit, 
and it fruits first and earlier in the year, and, and Lang is generally used as more of a dried fruit. There's a whole bunch of different varieties of them now. Um, but the other thing that makes them really functional in your landscape is even though they're a tree and even though they do tend to get pretty tall if you let them, they're very columnar. They don't get big and bushy. I've seen ones that are 20 feet tall and they're probably six feet wide. They grow like a, almost like one of those, uh, ornamental cedars. Like they don't look like that, kind of that shape. So if you prune them to where they're, you know, six, eight, nine feet tall, You end up with a pretty compact tree that has a pretty significant yield. If there's a downside, they really do kind of need a pollinator. So it's something you do probably need to put two of them in. But, hey, Lee and Lang are highly available. And then you get those two different varieties. Again, you get uh, a, a date that you can eat like candy. Or you can remove the pit and chop it up and use it to sweeten cooking. And you got that fresh fruit. And if you have enough space to put a lot of them in, let me tell you, if you have a strong Asian community, a strong ethnic Asian community, specifically Chinese, in, in your area, you can build an entire business off a jujube orchard. So it's anything from a business model to a prepper food. I told you, I'm looking for stuff that's really versatile for you today. Next up today are roses, wild varieties and older varieties, things that produce big hips. Rose hips are an incredible yield. It, again, When you start going to health food stores and box stores and see something on the shelf uh, in both of them, you start to realize there's something here with serious demand, and rose hips are one of those. They're, I think, ten times higher in vitamin C than an orange. And you can do a lot of things with rose hips. Jellies, they can be used as flavoring agents in alcoholic beverages. Um, I had an outstanding rose hip liquor one time. That was basically all, all that was done with it is the rose hips were steeped in hot water and then squeezed out to get all of their flavor out of them. And then a cup of simple syrup, which is one cup of sugar to one cup of water, and two cups of like hunter proof vodka. And it resulted in a liquor that was like a, I want to say like a 50 proof, like in the schnapps range. And that was pretty fantastic. My grandma used to make rose hips soup. So we don't really think about all the great things that rose hips do because we, we now we go to the supermarket and we just buy stuff. And it, it's not a product that packages well like that. The other thing you can use roses to do, though, is to make rose water. Most people don't really know what rose water is all about. Rose water is very astringent. It's not something, it sounds like something, pour that over some ice, man. No. No, it will pucker you like you wouldn't believe. But small amounts of it in drinks, etc., can be a flavor enhancer. And there's even a, a very old cocktail called a Rosewater Ricky. I'll let you look that one up if you want to. But it's a it's more of a, a woman's drink traditionally, but it's pretty cool. Um, but Rosewater is incredibly good for the skin because of those astringent properties. It tightens skin. So it can be used, and it is used in a lot of health and beauty products. So I'm, I'm not going to go wash my face in rose water every day to try to look younger, but a lot of people would. And that means for those that are trying to build a business on an herbal products thing, it's not something you eat. It's not something you consume. It, it doesn't have a lot of the other regulations that go around it, and it can be put into any type of... Um, a cream or a, a something that would help with skin and things like that. So it has a lot of value like that. Plus, they're pretty in the landscape. 
And then the right varieties, you end up with this really thorny mass and planted in certain areas, it can be used as a security measure. So you start to function stack roses, you can do anything from plant a big cluster of them under a window, then you get your, your flowers, then you get your, you know, you get your, uh, your hips, uh, and you also get security from the window, or you can do what I did. I planted like 50 rows of ragusas in a little mini swale that in a couple of years, when they all sucker out and grow together, I'm going to have a living fence, a pretty living fence that produces multiple yields for me. Um, And doesn't really ask for anything. They're, uh, roses, if you don't go with these delicate designer roses, you go with old cottage roses, you go with wild roses, you go with Rosa Ragosa, uh, things like that, and you end up with like almost a bulletproof plant. Um, even though the rose water is astringent, astringency in tea is a good thing. So one or two petals of, of dried rose petals in, in a tea is, is a good way to make teas. And the tea thing, guys, I like to drink teas. But the more I think about it, as we start to build up a book of business with the duck eggs, and we've got all these people interested in better health and better eating and things like that, and we have all these herbs and different leaves, I see a business model here. And it's a high-dollar business model. I'm looking right now on a, a website that sells a, a summer rose tea, and uh, it's uh, selling for um, $6 for three ounces, and it's basically black tea with some rose petals added to it. Um, there's there's a lot of value to be had out of some of these things, even if they're not necessarily things that you would use for yourself. Properly assembled and marketed, uh, they have a, a, a real potential for business use. The one caution with roses for teas and rose hip stuff and everything is if you eat too much of it, it's so high in vitamin C, it has somewhat of a diuretic effect. If you don't know what a diuretic effect means, it means you might poop your brains out. So it's actually used in Ayurvedic medicine, uh, traditional Indian medicine, uh, for that, that purpose. When I say Indian, I mean the subcontinent of India, not uh, Native Americans that we call Indians. So that's one caution I'll give you with uh, roses. Real quick one I'll add in here that I don't think people realize the value of uh, is a livestock fodder is native persimmon. Now, there's all these great persimmons you can buy like Fuyu and, and what have you that are really good for eating. But our native persimmons, small persimmons, uh, grow in a really tall tree. And not something you would grow in a typical backyard of a quarter acre in America. But for those grazing animals, if you make persimmon part of your civo pasture... What you have is a tree that holds the fruit way up where they can't get it. And it holds a lot of that fruit really late into the year. And a lot of times that fruit's going to drop in December or January even. And when it does, it's extremely concentrated with sugar. And, and livestock will go crazy on it. And it's giving them a high carbohydrate, high value food source at the time of the year when a lot of other things are scarce. So I just wanted to throw that one in real quick. Another one that I, I grow here on my property, and I say I grow here, I don't do anything anymore. It grows itself. It's called jute mallow, J-U-T-E-M-A-L-L-O-W. It's called a lot of other things too, including juice mallow um, and, and what have you. But this is an okra relative. And it gets little seed pods on it that sort of kind of look like mini okras. Do yourself a favor, don't eat those. That's not what it's for. Those are not good. Uh, the seeds are horrible, uh, and the pod is worse. 
So it is not an edible seed pod, even though it is an okra family relative. And it has a little yellow flower that kind of sort of reminds you of an okra flower. That's where the, the similarities end. The plant stems itself, actually, if you hear jute, you think of twine. It's a very good fiber plant. But the real reason to grow it, because it'd be a hell of a lot of work to make cordage out of, is for the leaves. The leaves are edible. And they're actually a pretty good green. They're a pretty good fresh green, especially when young. And they're pretty good cooked. Um, the reason I like it is I got a little packet of seeds that I had to take forever to find. Uh, I started them as plants. I put them out in the garden bed. They grew okay. And then that year I got like a half-gallon bag of seed off of that. And I scattered some of it around the property. It came up everywhere where I scattered it and where I guess it had just fallen from the plants. Some of it grew even the first year in places I'm like, I don't remember putting any there. The second year is everywhere. This year, I've got still have a lot of it standing with seed dropping out of it. And now underneath where it's growing, there's like a billion little green plants starting to come up, which I'm sure most are them. And I'm sure some will get overtaken and will end up with, you know, some of them growing into big plants again. They're, they grow into a big plant about head height if they really get up ahead of steam. And you can take the leaves off them all the way until late fall. So, like, for me, it was around September. The leaves started to get yellowish and not quite taste so good anymore and really weren't worth eating. But through the heat of summer, when you have a hard time, especially in southern states, growing things like lettuces and spinach and whatever, you still had a green. And if you had edible, palatable mulberry leaf, then you'd have two of them, I'm just saying. Um, but the, the, the beauty of this plant to me is how easily it grows by itself. And in this instance, the ducks and the geese don't seem to really eat much of it. They might take a nibble here or there, but they leave it alone. So I can graze them right through it, get my yield without having them take it all away. So that was another one that I thought I'd throw in there. Again, it's called jute mallow, the little blue-looking seeds that come out of the... Uh, Uh, the pods. Anybody that ever comes here, I try to give some seed to. Uh, next is lamb quarters. And lamb's quarters is considered a weed and terrible and awful and horrible. And the birds eat the hell out of it. The goats eat the hell out of it. Cows eat the hell out of it. Everybody eats it until a few of them get up to, you know, about three foot tall and the leaves get kind of fibrous and mealy and don't taste so good anymore. And then you decide which ones of those you want to let grow and you just cut the rest of the ground and they start coppicing from the ground. And those new shoots are nice and tender again. So eat the, eat the greens when they're young and tender. Lamb's quarters, you go out and pick a big mess of lamb's quarters, way more than you think you need. Because when you do what I'm about to say with it, you're, you end up with a lot less because it's like spinach and that it wilts down. But you saute that in bacon grease. A little bit of salt and a little bit of chili pepper. And serve that as a green with your dinner. Holy crap is it good. It's also good in soups. Like any kind of soup, really, you can add this to. Um, but... I like to make a version of a soup you get from the Olive Garden, which use like a spicy sausage, and I make my own, and then you use potatoes. And yes, I go ahead and use potatoes in this. I've also done a paleo version where I've used either parsnips, which weren't really that good. They're too sweet. Uh, I've also done it with turnips, which are okay. But what I found that worked really well for it was um, Jerusalem artichokes. And to cut them into like sort of kind of cubish, And to, to brown them just a little bit and then put them in the soup as a potato substitute or do half and half. So you have some regular potatoes in there and you get more of the chunks. So it's that and it's like basically chicken broth and, 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 and cream uh, that you make the soup out of. You can just look up Olive Garden Supa Toscana Clone on, on, uh, on, you, on, on Google and you'll find, uh, 
tons of clone recipes that are all pretty decent uh, for it. And, and what they usually then use is either uh, a kale or chard or something like that for the green component. Lamb's quarters in that is awesome. And you just basically take the leaves and, and cut them up and just throw them in there at the end and let them kind of melt in. Lamb's quarters in a soup, it, you, you, you kind of don't understand really how it works because you can eat raw lamb's quarter leaf, like in a salad or something, and it's okay. But it's really thin. It doesn't have much flavor. When you wilt it down by cooking and it absorbs some water, all that flavor comes out. And it not only tastes good when you eat it, it actually lends a pretty awesome flavor um, to the uh, to the, the soup that you're making. Now, another thing with lamb's quarter is it's a it's a chinopodium species. It's in the same family as goosefoot or quinoa, and the seeds are tiny as all get out. But if you let a plant go all the way to seed, that seed comes off really, really easily, and it's very high in protein. It's not something you'd be making tortillas or bread out of. It's just it's too small and it has no gluten and it just has no binding nature, but it's high in protein and it's nutty. You let it go until it's black and you can basically just take and cut the top off the plant, stick it in a five-gallon bucket, smack the hell out of it, and then run your hands across it and all the seed just comes out in the bucket. And I've seen full mature plants give almost a half gallon of seed. Because it's not like one plume like a like a amaranth. It's like the whole thing's bushed out and there's seed everywhere. And I've seen them get six, seven, eight foot tall, and they grow just about anywhere. So you got livestock fodder, you got a green plant, you got a protein yield in the seed. And the way I would use that is, you know, you could toast a little bit of it and sprinkle it on salads and stuff like that. On tops of like, if you do breads, I'm not big on bread, but on breads, any kind of a dough or something, you add a couple scoops of it to the dough. Um, you could add it to pancakes. And if you do any kind of like paleo pancakes or something like that, and you're because you're a paleo type, like this is another way to add a nuttiness and another level of flavor to it. Because some of that stuff doesn't have the the bang on hit you like you know a good old fashioned buttermilk pancake that I break down every once in a while and eat does. So that's another one. Um, the next one is amaranth, and to me, um, it is is highly used as the grain was in amaranth by uh, Native Americans, specifically in Central and South America. And as valuable as that grain yield is, it's kind of a pain to harvest. But the green leaf of amaranth, the young shoots of amaranth, again, is another green spinach substitute, that type of thing, very, very high in protein. Uh, the lowest numbers I've seen out are 18%. 18% protein from a leaf? Um, a, a gal that listens to the show that has a booth at the Arlington Farmer's Market grows amaranth in her backyard, and she makes tortillas where she dries the amaranth leaf and then crumbles it. So you get these dried crumbled bits of amaranth, and it's mixed into the tortillas. And it adds protein to the tortillas, and it adds flavor to the tortillas. And when she gave me some of those, they were fantastic. So, and, so her business is this. She has decided that she would always be growing at least one ingredient on every item in her stand on her property, which is a little property. So, you know, you use organic flour to make the tortilla, but then you include the locally grown amaranth. And so every product, whether it's a salsa or a sauce or a flavoring or a seasoning mix, has at least one component, if not more, grown on her little property. It's a great marketing hook there. 
And amaranth is one of the ways she did that. Now, this is what I like about growing amaranth. I used to buy a little pack of amaranth seeds, you know, for a couple bucks. And you can go to feed stores and, you know, whatever, and you can buy it in huge amounts of bulk in a sack for, you know, people that would grow it in a field or what have you. But if you go to any of, like, the health food stores that sell, like, out of bins, right, like um, – Uh, Whole Foods or something like that, where they have the big bins and you can buy like a pound of something at a time. You usually get amaranth for about three bucks a pound. And it's just seed amaranth. So it grows. It grows like crazy. So you can go down and buy, you know, like a clamshell of a pound of amaranth seed, which has a billion seeds in it, for three or four bucks. And then just mix that into your seed mixes and start spreading it on your property. And most of the stuff I've bought like that grows a pretty nice green leaf amaranth that gets up around five feet. And has a yellow golden seed, and it produces pretty well. Um, I've got, I just looked in the, the cabinet, and I, I guess I had bought a clamshell of it, and there's about half of it left, so I'm going to mix that into the next time I do seeding uh, and see if it'll still uh, work for you. But it's also a great sprouting grain. It's probably better as a sprout than a seed. So you can buy it like that, and then you, you, you just keep it wet and sprout it like you do any grain sprout. And I think that is a great way to make it worth harvesting off your own property. So you go to a sprout, and those sprouts are really, really nutritious. They can be given to livestock. I mean, if you have chickens and you grow amaranth, I say just grow it for the chickens. Huge, huge quality boost to your eggs and your meat from your chickens. And all I would do then is you cut the tops off the amaranth, hang them up and let them dry. And throw the whole damn thing to the chickens. Or don't even let them dry. Just cut it and throw it to the chickens. They'll sort it out. They know what to do. They can pick all those little seeds out and study you. So amaranth is another one. The next one is bee balm. Uh, Morinda. Bee balm you'll see as an ornamental sold in a lot of uh, big box store nurseries and things like that. Like all mint family members, you do have the thing where it runs, it'll take over spaces, etc. I don't generally have a problem with things that run and take over spaces. I put them in spaces I want taken over. It produces these big puffball-looking flowers. They bring in butterflies. They bring in all types of pollinated insects. Bees love it. And so it's good for that. The leaf makes a tea that I can't really describe the flavor of. It's like a softer... Green tea, I guess, would be the way. It has a very, very nice flavor. It's not something that you generally would drink unsweetened by itself, but it has this nice balancing component to it when used with other things to make tea. So it's a good tea plant. It's a good ground cover. It's a beneficial insect attractor. And being a mint, if you want more, you take a cutting, you put it in some moist soil in a little pot or something, you keep it in the shade till it roots in, you stick it wherever you want it, and you get more and more and more and more and more. If you ever want to contain mint variety things of any any variety, here's one way I grew bee balm right in a garden and never had it get away. If you go to like Home Depot, Lowe's, the home improvement stores, you see a lot of different options in peel and stick tiles now. So it looks like a, a ceramic tile, but you peel the back off and it sticks to the ground. They make some that are peel and stick that are try to make your floor look like a wood floor, and they're about a yard long. They're about three foot long. And they're peel and stick and they're a very thick vinyl. And they sell for about 75 cents to a dollar and a half a piece. If you get four of them and, and stick them together with their stickiness so that you get uh, two of them to make a circle and then you do it too deep and they're about six inches. So then you got about a 12-inch 
circle of heavy, thick vinyl. And you dig a hole, and into it you put that ring. And there's a lot of other things you could do this to. This was just really thick vinyl that's going to last a long, dadgone time. Cheap, easy, and fast expedient. And sink that in the ground. And then leave it about an inch and a half above ground. So you're going down about 11 inches and up about an inch. And then plant your mint variety, your bee balm, your lemon balm, your peppermint, your spearmint, whatever, in there. It's too deep for it really to send runners out. And if you have really friable deep soil, maybe you go a third level down to, to make sure that doesn't happen. And as it spreads out, it runs into that. And all you have to do is kind of keep it on. If it starts to, to climb up and over, you just trim it off. And then you can grow mints and get all the benefits of, of companion planting mint varieties right in places where you don't want it to take over. But here's the other thing I've noticed about like peppermint, spearmint, etc. It, it works a lot like clover. If I want to grow any plant that occupies any space other than a ground cover itself, and I chop a hole where the mint is, and I dig a hole down and I put that plant in that hole, that plant grows up and above the mint, and the mint might climb on it a little bit, but not much. And that plant does its thing, and the mint does its thing. Not so much with bee balm, because it's a taller plant. But with your mints, your spearmints, etc., that's, that's the way. So throw that in there. But bee balm is an amazing tea plant. It's one of the best herbal teas that you can grow. Uh, one of the closest tasting things to typical uh, Asian teas that, that you're going to get. Next, mints. I've just kind of talked about that a little bit, but I want to say spearmints, peppermints, sweet mints, whatever. Mint is awesome. And control, I just gave you how to do that. You can add little bits of mint to salad. You can make um, a really great adult beverage, right? The mojito, right? The Most of the restaurants you go to and, and, and get a mojito from, the, it's not really a mojito. They, you know, In America, we ruin everything. The margarita is supposed to be uh, triple sec or some other form of orange liqueur. Lime juice and tequila. That is all. Not sweet and sour mix, not a big giant jug of Kool-Aid with tequila in it. That's it. A margarita should be small. When people tell me, I love this place, it's great margaritas. I'm like, really? What's great about them? They're so huge. I don't even want to try it. I know it's crap. That's not what a margarita is. So let me tell you guys real quick how to mix an actual mojito. This would be to make one. You do use a little bit of sugar because there's not a triple sec. There's not a sweet liqueur in here. So you take some mint leaves and about a teaspoon of sugar. A lot of recipes will call for like two tablespoons. You're making Kool-Aid. You're not making a freaking mojito. So about a teaspoon of sugar, maybe a teaspoon and a half. And you put that into the bottom of a glass. And then you pour about a shot of rum in there. And you, there's a tool called a muttler, but you could just take a spoon. And you just kind of pound the mint leaves with the spoon and pound the sugar into the mint leaves. Add the juice of one lime at that point. So take a lime, cut it in half, squeeze juice or squeeze, squeeze, one whole lime into that. Big handful of ice. And then add about a half a cup of sparkling water. You can use club soda, but sparkling water is much cleaner taste. Just just carbonated water. So like uh, Perrier or some crap like that. You know, anything like that. Sparklets makes a decent sparkling water. Just sparkling water. Uh, and this is not a big glass. This is like a cocktail glass. So, I mean, you're probably using about, a, at the most, about a half a cup of sparkling water. Traditionally, a lot of times they, they rim the glass with lime juice and put a little sugar on it. You could do that if you want to, but it's not necessary. It's an incredibly refreshing drink. 
And it ain't right without the mint. And if you go to a restaurant, you order one, and it comes out one of those big fishbowl-looking things, just send it back and tell them they don't know how to make a mojito and order a beer. And never order anything from that bar again because they don't know how to make a drink. Um, but that's like one of the many things that we can do with mint. You can actually make candies from mint. But it's, it, it's bang on in teas. So now I want to give you what's become my favorite tea to drink off my property now that I've gotten all of the, the items uh, here. I grab a few, and I just grab them right off the plant, a few lemon balm leaves, a few blackberry leaves, uh, and then a few bee balm leaves and a few mint leaves. And I usually grab some peppermint and some sweet mint. And then I grab a few green leaves off of uh, the wolfberry, goji berry. I put those all in a glass, just a, a teacup, and just pour hot water over them. And I don't, I don't mess with them. I leave them as whole leaves. And the reason is, since they're a whole leaf and you pour the hot water on them, they kind of float to the surface. I let that steep for about two or three minutes. And then you just take a spoon and you can just reach in and it all comes out as one big mat. You don't have to filter it. You don't have to put it in a tea ball. And you just kind of squeeze it out with your fingers. And then you can throw that back out in the garden. It's mulch. And then you add a teaspoon of honey to that. Awesome. I can't wait till the blackberries come on because I think that would be great if we added like two blackberries... Uh, and maybe uh, four or five goji berries, dry goji berries to that same tea. I think that's going to be pretty fantastic. But that's my favorite tea to drink. Um, and I've, I've been trying to drink more of that lately than coffee because I was at a point where I was drinking about two pots of coffee a day, and that's just too much caffeine. And I like warm beverages. I, I do, even in the heat of summer. I like to have hot beverages, especially first thing in the morning when I walk my property. I like to have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea And I go out and I pay attention to everything on the property. I take the whole property in. Now, I want to say something about this, especially for somebody that might be new to this show. This is supposed to be the survivalist dude. And the survivalist dude's talking about making lavender freaking cookies and teas. I also talked to you on Monday about the 40-hour work week and how that's basically a lifestyle designed for you to control you. And that we've lost the quality in our lives. And we've lost the health and vibrancy in our lives. Okay, I am not a soft guy. If you're a dick to me, I'm a dick to you. Really, really fast. If I see somebody being attacked, I will physically intervene. Okay? Um, I kind of have a warrior spirit. People talk about being a sheepdog. I'm like, that doesn't go far enough. I'm a freaking wolf. I run with packs. right? I have people that I am 100% loyal to. I will fiercely defend them. And the dog is controlled by society. The wolf is independent of society. The wolf acts on its own best interest, but with fierce loyalty to all that cooperate with it. That's, that's who I am. So I'm not about to tell you to start meditating and contemplating your navel and healing your soul through finding your life partner or whatever. I don't decry that. That's just not me, and it's not what I'm trying to get at here. But when we start to learn to experience the flavors and the, the nuances of our land that we live on, that we reside on, that we view as the place that is our home, instead of just something that costs us money, there's a mental health there that's huge. Additionally, All of these things I've talked about today, like bee balm and mint and, and mulberry and elderberry, have very high-quality 
gentle medicinal values and we're tonifying our health. And I'll tell you something that people freak out when I say this, but you don't need to freak out because I'm probably healthier now than I have been in the last 15 years. I haven't been to a doctor other than for a physical for jobs. Like you go get a job, they want you to have a physical, etc. Um, I haven't been to a doctor since 1994. I'm on no medications whatsoever. At all. None. Um, I am very unlikely to even take a Motrin or a Tylenol or an Advil unless I have some sort of really bad ache. I get up first thing every morning without an alarm clock. I go to bed, I'm happy. Today when I walk, the reason the show's so late today, because I spent two hours slowly walking my property like I was walking through a forest uh, as a hunter because I was beginning to realize that's what my property's actually starting to turn into. It's turning into forest now. I'm spending time with my animals. Things like teas, things like picking the tops of wild garlic and including them in your salad, these things start to improve the quality of your life in ways you will never understand until you begin to experience them. In permaculture, we talk about designing in zones. And zone one is the, the, the place that when I open my door and I walk out of my home, the first foot I step, I'm in zone one. And I grow the things that I'm going to use every day. That's where my parsley should be. That's where my sage should be, right? My oregano, my little some chives. Even if they're all over the property, there should be some there. If it's cold and, and raining and I'm making soup and I want some parsley and chives to go on my soup and a little bit of rosemary to go on my soup, I should be able to duck out the door, grab that, and throw it in there. And then zone two is a little further out. Zone three is a little further out. Zone four is a little further out, etc. Inside the home... People that have taken this concept a little further say it's zone zero. The actual home I live in, that I design the home now, and I start thinking about if I'm building my home from scratch, I should put my bedroom on the side of the home that's really cool. I'll sleep better cold. There's a whole way we can design houses, and even if I'm just retrofitting a house, there's all types of things I can do inside the house. To And I'm not talking feng shui crap here. I'm talking about functional realities to how to make the home more energy efficient just by where certain things are placed and how certain things are done. But then you would have, I don't even know what you would call it, but the internal zone. It's you yourself. And, and I don't think we spend enough time focused on us anymore. We, we, we say we live in a me society, but all, all of our focus is external. When we say people are out for themselves, me, 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 that, they, they, that doesn't mean they take time to actually reflect on their life and how they got where they are and where they're going. That means is they want the next shiny thing, etc. This type of lifestyle that I promote, which is, Yeah, have your beans, your bullets, and your band-aids. Be ready to defend yourself. Study a martial art. Be in good shape. Right? Learn a little bit more every day. Have emergency plans. Have a plan in place. Have groups that you know you can count on. All of the stuff that we talk about in modern survivalism, that's all good and well. And we need to do that too. But if you fall over and die at 47 from a heart attack due to stress... Or if you can't lose weight because you have so much cortisol pumping through your body and, and the, the, the magic pill on TV isn't going to make that stop, guys. 
that you, you, you can't lose weight and you have all of the health problems that go along with that. If your children are strangers to you because you don't take time to reflect on your life and share those experiences with them. If every bit of your life is controlled by someone else and zero by you, you're going to end up miserable and or dead or at least in extremely shitty poor health. And by the time you realize it and you decide to spend time with the children around you, with the rest of your family, they're all wrapped up in that themselves and they're probably not ready to listen to you about decoupling because you never modeled the behavior. This type of experience of, of growing your own food, and notice we didn't talk about tomatoes and apples and peppers today. These are all things that can just be in, installed into a landscape and then be grazed on throughout the year. That type of experience requires that you stop. It takes no mental conditioning. It takes no mental process whatsoever other than basic physical mechanics to swing through the drive through window or even go out to a nice restaurant. It doesn't even take much real thought to grab a steak out of the refrigerator and throw it on the grill. And trust me, I'm going to do that tonight. I value good quality grilled meat, but you don't really think about it. But when you're eating an egg that you picked up that morning from a duck that laid it for you, that you've cared for, when you make a tea from the, 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 the bounty of your own land, when you start to see things change, when you take a walk and you say, look at that plant, that plant's never been here before. What is that? And you realize that just what you've done has created a niche that's brought something new. Or when you see a plant and you go, that's not a perennial That's an annual. I did plant that last year. That reseeded itself, and that's useful to me, and that probably means it's going to be here forever now. That requires a, a totally different focus on yourself. That's an internal focus. You start thinking about your place in the world who you are, what you are, and you start to realize what you are. You're a human, and you begin the process we call rewilding rewilding and that's what we need to do that's what makes all of this sustainable agriculture permaculture a liberation ideology most people can't recognize a liberation ideology any longer they don't know what one looks like they are the animal that's been in a cage for so long you not only can leave the door open you can remove the door and it won't leave they're human cattle Society has bred human cattle, and the, the, the fencing that kept the cattle on the ranch rusted to the ground a century ago, and the cattle won't leave. They don't know to leave. We're milked and we're bled like the cattle of the Maasai, but we are treated like the cattle on a CAFO, confined, but there's no fence. We've lost our wild nature. We've lost what it means to be feral. We've become domesticated. Human beings are not supposed to be domesticated. Taking the time to use your mind to formulate a tea is not something that a weak human does. Buying a piece of crap called a tea that is not good for you is what a weak human does. Extracting the essence of your property to fortify your mind and your body and your soul are the acts of a warrior. 
Permaculture isn't about purple breather hippie bullshit. It's a warrior ideology, but a different kind of a warrior. A warrior that doesn't fight to take from others, but a warrior that fights for his right to provide for himself and his family through the most peaceful means possible. And sometimes peaceful isn't very peaceful because it's always about what's possible. I mean you no harm until you harm me or my family or my community, and then I mean you harm very, very seriously. That's warrior ideology. It's warrior ideology without militant ideology. Those are two different things. People think warrior and military. No, militaries fight for others at the command of a third party. So the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines, these guys really believe they're fighting for me and you, but it's not you and I that are telling them to go fight. It's a power elite system that's using their capabilities on another human being somewhere for the benefit, not of you and I, but for the, 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 the economic elite. It didn't used to be that way, but that's what it's become. And it doesn't take away from the nobility of those that serve. It means they're being used as tools. In the words of Henry Kissinger, they are seen by those that command them as dumb, stupid animals. His words, not mine. To resist, to resist control through providing your own foods, fibers, and medicines is the act of a warrior. That's why I'm so passionate about this. And it's our only solution to all of the problems that we have. We can solve every problem we have, not for the world, but for those that choose to take part in the solution. I cannot drag you along. I cannot force you to be part of the solution. The solution by its nature is a decentralized, anti-political solution. We can solve the water problem. We can solve the medicine problem. We can solve the food problem. We can even solve the problem with oppression by remembering what we are. Wild creatures. We are wild creatures. We are not domesticated animals. We are a species that evolved walking barefoot through the forest. I don't think we need to go back to that level of hunter-gatherer. But taking a walk in your backyard and bare feet on grass that you've grown to a point where it's comfortable to do that, healing a bee sting, with a piece of plantain, getting rid of the itch of an ant with a crumbled piece of comfrey, calming your nerves for whatever actually stressed you out if you're living this way with a bit of honey and lemon balm, greeting the day with a cup of tea you've created for yourself, raising animals as they were meant to live, while raising yourself and your spirit as you were meant to live? That is the new warrior ideology. That is the liberation 
that we represent in what we do as modern survivalists, as permaculturists, as horticulturists, but mostly simply as humans. All of these other words are things that we do, the processes that we regain who and what we are. It is our innate basic humanity that we have lost. That's the great sin of the system. That's what it's taken from you. A child just a few years ago could walk through a forest and tell you the poisonous plants and the medicinal plants and the edible plants and when was the right time to harvest a fish or a squirrel or a rabbit or a deer. And not just a child in the, the Amazon. A child in rural Pennsylvania knew those things because I was him. That was the 1980s. It's not that long ago. It's not that long ago, folks. You've been deceived to believe that these things have been stripped from you. They can no more strip these things from you. They, they can strip your DNA from you. It might take a little bit, but they can't take it from you because it is you. It's what you are. We have been convinced that humanity is a destructive force in our planet. And every effort made to change that is actually resisted by those that say they need it changed. Because they don't want you to do it. They want you to allow them to do it. And that's not what they intend to do. If you want to fight as a warrior, fight the actual battle that's raging. This battle's not in Washington, D.C., This battle is for the control of your mind, the control of your spirit, the control of your energy, and to suck the life essence and energy essence in the form of money out of you, out of your soul, out of your mind, out of your body, and out of your pockets, and out of the pockets of your children and their children yet to be born. That is the war. And it is by convincing you that you need to follow their rules to have a roof over your head, food on your table, and medicine for your body, and the things that you need to live and be happy. So fight that war. Fight that battle. Because that's the place you're being attacked. If I want to defeat my enemy, I get him to fight somebody else. And I get him to waste his energy fighting a war that doesn't really exist while I overcome and overtake him from behind. That is the human condition that is the system. That's the power of chives, plantain, roses, and lemon balm. The reclaiming. Think about what I'm saying here. It is the reclaiming of our right to provide our own food, our own medicines, our own fibers. That's what it's about. That's why I love when people like Ron Finley in Los Angeles say, you want to make a difference? Plant some shit. Get something done. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. Don't wait till you have a bigger piece of land. Do what you can with what you have now because it's more than you believe that it ever could be. And with that, 
This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution